Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. My question for you today as we begin this message is, what is your all-time favorite vacation? Has there ever been a time in your life when you went on a trip that you have just never forgotten? Maybe it was going camping with your family in the wilderness. Maybe it was going across America to see another state or go to a national park. Or maybe it was to go overseas to another country to enjoy some time away. In our culture, we view as vacation as not really a time of rest. In fact, many of you have gone on these trips and you had to come back home and start going to work again so you could go home and get some rest. But vacation not only can be a time of rest, it can be a time where we get away. Probably my favorite vacation that I've been on was earlier this year. I went to a private island in the Caribbean islands, and there I stood on this beach, and, and this beach, was the, the sand was just so pure. It was as if nobody had ever walked on that, sea, that shore before. As I walked into the ocean, I, I looked into the ocean, and I, I could see my feet for the first time ever being in the ocean where I could see the crystal clear water. I could see all the way down to the ground. I look out as far as I could see everywhere. It was just crystal clear blue sky, crystal clear sea, and, and there's no pollution, no oil, no trash, no nothing in the ocean. And I found a, a place where they had a group of hammocks, and I lay down on that hammock, and I took a nap for a couple hours, and I was at paradise. I say that to say this that you might be able to go on a vacation and experience some rest, but that rest does not compare to the rest that is being presented to us in our passage today. Today, I would like to label my, my sermon with these words. God's rest is the greatest rest. God's rest is the greatest rest. And if you walk away with anything, that's really the, the one thing I want you to take away with today's message. And if I could elaborate on that thought a little bit, here's what I wrote down. God gave us his best in order to give us his rest. God gave us his best in order to give us his rest. 2,000 years ago, we know that God Almighty left his heavenly throne and he entered into humanity. And there he gave his best on the old rugged cross so that we could, in a sense, experience the greatest rest that was ever given, not by the hand of Joshua to the Israelites into Canaan's land, but an eternal rest that we're going to speak about later on today. And we see, if we keep in our minds here, that, that the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is, is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is, is greater than all the angelic beings that has ever been made. That Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. And in our passage today, Jesus Christ is greater and better and superior than the leader named Joshua. And then later on in the next couple of chapters, we'll discuss how Jesus is greater than Aaron. In other words, Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament and anything in this world. So why settle for anything less than the greatest person named Jesus? But that being said, I want to draw your attention to these 13 verses. I want to share with you three thoughts about this rest. 
about this section of Scripture that God has been speaking to me through this passage, and I want to relate to you. The first of three thoughts is this. As I read and have been reading and meditating in verses 1 through 7, here's what I wrote down. Disbelief in God's promises produces disobedience to God's precepts. Disbelief in God's promises produces disobedience to God's precepts. Let's keep in mind that when the book of Hebrews was written down, most likely it was a sermon that was preached and was transcribed and sent to these Jewish believers. And when they received this word, this letter, this message, they read it from beginning to the ending. They didn't pause and, and pull out just a section like we do today. So when we, we need to understand that chapters 3 and 4 are really the first, or not, excuse me, the second major warning passage of this book. And he's warning these believers to say, hey, don't harden your hearts like those in the wilderness. When their hearts were calloused up to God's word and they began to reject God's word in such a way that God brought his judgment and chastisement upon them. And, and we saw last time that, that this disbelief belief produced a disobedient heart towards the word of God. And we see an extended thought of that in verses one through seven of this chapter in number four, that disbelief, this unbelief in the promises of God will produce a disobedient heart towards the precepts of God. That being said, let's look at verse number one. The Bible says, let us therefore, remember every time you see the word therefore or wherefore in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you have to pause and reflect upon what has just been said. And we see all the messages in chapter number three. Jesus is, just, Jesus is just described as being way superior than Moses. Moses, perhaps the greatest character of the Old Testament. And, and, and the writer says here that Jesus is greater than Moses. So why settle and go back underneath the law of Moses when a greater than Moses is here? And then he elaborates on Psalm 95, and we see an extension of that is being revealed here in chapter 4. And he says, let us therefore fear. Say fear with me. Fear. Say it again. Fear. I believe what is needed in this world today is an extra dose of godly fear. That is the fear of God. When we turn on our television, when we open up our tablets, our, our computers, our phones, whenever we do, we need a little dose of the fear of God in our lives. I believe that not just the modern church has lost that fear, but I believe the American culture has long since lost the fear of God in the hearts of mankind. You see, if we had the fear of God in our hearts, we would know that when, that, that, that when we hear God's word, we would hearken and we would not harden our hearts towards it. And here, the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, hey, do not harden your hearts to the promises that was given to us especially back in the wilderness journey. And he says, nor the promises of the day. By the way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to be wise, begin by fearing God. By the way, as I read these first two verses, underneath this thought of disbelief in God's promises produces disobedience to God's precepts. Here's what I wrote down. I wrote down this. Unbelief is really the theme of these two chapters. I wrote down, unbelief will rob you or will rob us, unbelief will rob us of God's promised rest. Unbelief will rob us of God's promised rest. So here he's saying, do not fear unless you reject 
the promises that God has given to us. I'm glad we serve a God who does not break his promises. I'm glad that when God says something, he means what he says, and he says what he means, and we can take it to the bank, and it's going to happen. And here he promised these Israelites that if you obey my word, I will give you this land of rest. And what happened? They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. They saw sign after sign after sign. They saw wonder after wonder after wonder. And they said, God, we've heard about your rest, but we don't want your rest. We want to go back to Egypt. God, we've, we've heard about this promise that you, go, that you gave to Moses, and now we've heard it from Moses. And God, we do not want your rest. Ultimately, that's what belief or disbelief leads to. Disbelief leads to such a disobedient heart that you will ultimately reject with great a great emotional imbalance, and you'll say, God, I don't want your promises. I believe that's what America's saying today. America's saying, God, I don't want your promises of, of eternal rest. I believe the modern church is saying, God, I would rather have the promises of man than the promises of God. And, and here he says, he says, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of. Now, let me pause here. When I read verse number one where it speaks about coming short of, I was reminded of what Paul said in Romans. He said, we've all sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. Now, just, just so you know, all of us have a calloused, hardened heart to the word of God. And, and as John Newton said, we are nothing more than wretched sinners and we need the grace and mercy of God. And we don't deserve the promises that God has given us. That being said, we see in verse number two, the Bible says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. We know the gospel, the word gospel means good news. We know the word preach, it means to herald forth. And so in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, I believe he's going back into the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, they heard about this good news and this promise of a rest. And in their calloused, unbelief heart, they chose to reject it. And he said, just as they've heard the word of God and the gospel preached, we have heard a similar message. It's just our message reveals a different person than Joshua and Joshua's message. Our message reveals Jesus, how Jesus left his heavenly throne and he came to die a sinner's death, even though he was not a sinner. And there he nailed our sins on him and he died in our place. And there he rose victoriously from the grave. And he said, as well, this same message, he says, but the word preached did not benefit them, not being mixed with faith, in them that heard it. This is not necessarily, this is not saying that when we share our faith, our faith is being shared in vain. Because we know the Bible says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that God's word is never sown in vain. But what it simply means here is I believe it's it gives the idea of the, the the parable of the sower, where the sower went out to sow those seeds, and some fell by the by the by the wayside, some fell on the rocky soil, and some fell on the good soil. And here, the word that was being sown through Moses, that word was being Sown on a stony heart. I don't want a stony heart. I want a heart that is softened with good soil. To where the word of God can drive into my mortal flesh and can transform me from the inside out. What kind of heart do you have? Are you a, do you have an unbelief heart that's 
robbing you from God's promised rest. But as I read verses 3 through 7, here's another thought I wrote down. I wrote down, unbelief will develop a hardened heart to God's promised rest. So, so like I said, it, it's going to rob us of it. It's going to steal. It'll be like a thief coming in and taking us from it. But then, then our hearts will be developed in such a way that here in verses 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, it gives us an extension thought about that hardened heart. Remember, that word hardened is kind of like a, a, a stubborn heart and this heart that just adamantly rejects and denies Look at verse 4. We're not going to look at every single verse here, but in verse 4, I believe it gives this idea of the Creator. The writer of Hebrews affirms time and time again that God is our Creator. God spoke our lives into existence. God spoke the mountains into place. God spoke the oceans into existence. God spoke everything that you see in the world and in the universe into being. But a hardened heart ultimately will deny Jesus as Creator. Because we'll begin to doubt God's Word and we'll say, Hey, I, I no longer need to believe that God is my Creator. But it's interesting. Verse 4 says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. Remember, back in Genesis, God created this on day one, this on day two, all the way to day six. And then on day seven, the Bible says he rested from his labor. The word rest, it means to cease from working and laboring and toiling. And so God did that. He set an example for us. But here, ultimately, it's, it's pointing us to the fact that God is our creator and that he created this rest. And yes, we might experience a time of rest and retirement every day when we go to sleep at night, but it's ultimately nothing like the rest in eternity in heaven with Jesus. Then, as I read verse, the next verses here, as I'm reading all these verses, I, I'm not only thinking in my mind that that unbelief will drive us to reject Christ as our creator, but unbelief will drive us to reject Christ as our savior. Perhaps, perhaps he's calling out these people who are saying, hey, why do we need this Jesus when we got the law of Moses? Why do we need the sacrifice of the Savior, the Son of God, when we have the sacrifices of the lambs and the pigeon doves and the turtle doves. I know our temptation is a little different. Their temptation was to go back underneath the law. Our temptation after receiving the grace of God is to go back to our old sinful lifestyle. And that's what we have to keep in mind here. That just as these Jewish believers were being tempted to be swayed back into an Old Testament law system and an idea of faith, looking to the Messiah to come, our temptation is receiving that grace of God and going back into our old sinful nature before coming to know Christ as Savior. We have to be careful because anybody can trip up and fall and stumble to sin. But it's another thing to trip up and fall and stay down and just live a lifestyle of absolute, total, habitual sin, knowing that what you're doing is wrong. These Jewish believers, I believe that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing, hey, you know it's wrong to go back underneath the law because now we have a greater person than Moses, is Jesus. We have a greater one than the prophets, is Jesus. We don't need that. And our temptation is Satan begins to throw darts in our way and say, hey, do you, you remember what that used to taste like? You remember what that used to feel like? Well, I think it's going to be okay if you just do it for one day. Then one day turns to two, and two turns to three, and then three turns into a week, a week turns into a month, and the next thing you know... Years have gone by, and you've backslidden from the presence of God. Disbelief in God's promises produces disobedience to God's precepts. Verse number 7 reiterates this theme of Psalm 95, as the writer has in his mind here in these two chapters. 
But remember, God gave us His best in order to give us His rest. Jesus is the best there was, the best there is, and the best there ever will be. God's rest is the greatest rest. Nothing else compares. But now may I draw your attention to the next few verses here. Verses 8 through 11. Really, I believe this is the, the theme of the, of, the, of the passage. And this is what I wrote down secondly today. Joshua offered a temporal rest, but Jesus offers an eternal rest. Joshua offered a temporal rest, but Jesus offers an eternal rest. Let's look at these next few verses. Now, I'm sure if you've ever done any study here in verse 8, you know that when I read, it says, for this Jesus... If you happen to use other translations of the Bible, you'll know that it will say Joshua. So which one is it? It's interesting. There's only two times in the New Testament where other translators have translated the word Jesus as Joshua. It's Acts chapter 7 and right here. And it's interesting. I'm with the King James translators on this one. That if we're going to be faithful to that exact word, we have to be consistent all the way through and translated Jesus. But we know that the context here is that the same name Joshua is the same name Jesus. But then the context describes to us which one it's referring to. And so in Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen is preaching his message, and he's, he's driving at home a point about the Jesus in the Old Testament. And we know that, that Joshua's name is like Jesus, and Jesus' name is like Joshua. And so the Jesus of the Old Testament is Joshua, but the Jesus of the New Testament is a greater one than Joshua, and his name is Jesus. And here's why I believe we should stick with the term Jesus in this verse. Because it's Joshua's life is a picture and a snapshot that points us to a greater life named Jesus. So Joshua was the commander and chief of Israel's army, but Jesus is the commander and chief over God's army. Joshua led the people to victory over their enemies, but Jesus leads us to victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Listen, Joshua might have led those Israelites into battle and they won, but Jesus leads us into battle of the arch enemy of Satan, and he's the one who can ultimately conquer for us and bring us victory. Joshua led the people into the promised land, but Jesus leads us into the promised land of heaven, not Canaan. So for if Jesus, or if you want to, the Jesus of the Old Testament, had given them rest... In other words, he's saying in verse number one, if that guy Joshua would have given you this eternal rest, then there would be, if the Old Testament Jesus would have gave you that rest, there would be no need for a New Testament Jesus to give us the eternal rest. And that's all the writer is saying here. It's like Jesus does what Joshua cannot do. And that is, give us eternal rest. It says, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There'd be no point of a Messiah coming. There'd be no point of Psalm 22. There'd be no point of Isaiah 53. There'd be no point of some of these Old Testament passages that point us to Jesus if Joshua did what the Messiah, Jesus, would have done. So I guess we could literally say Jesus is superior, greater, and better than Joshua in the Old Testament. Verse number 9. It says, There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. Speaking about the eternal rest. 
Verse number 10 says, For he that entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, and God did from his. In other words, he's saying that, that, that just as God ceased on that seventh day from his labor and toil, there will come a day in all of our lives when we'll cease from this labor and toil of this laboring in this life. Verse number 11. We'll come back to this one in a second. But it says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Really fast, I'm not going to tell you long here, but there are five different rests that are being presented in this chapter. The first one is the Sabbath rest. We read about that in the Old Testament book of Genesis chapter 2 and Exodus chapter number 20. And by the way, it's the only commandment of the Ten Commandments that does not transition over into the New Testament. And Paul writes into the church of Colossae and says, Do not let anybody judge you over a Sabbath. So if somebody tries to tell you you are required to keep the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, the seventh day of the week, as a day of solemn rest, you can just point them to the book of Colossians and say, Do not judge me in that matter. Then the second one is found in verse number 11, or chapter 3 in verse number 11. It speaks about the rest of Canaan, Canaan's rest. That is the promised rest that God gave the Israelites to, to leave the wilderness of sin and the journey of the wilderness to go into that place of rest where it's flowing with milk and honey and prosperous um, living. And then the, the next one is, the third one is the believer's rest in Christ. Look in verse number 3 and verse number 10. We read about that rest. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And then in verse number 11, we read about that victory rest, the believer's victorious rest. And it's only found in Jesus. And then in verse number 9, where the writer emphasizes here, there's an eternal rest. And that's the rest that we should be striving for. Not a temporal rest. Not, not, not working my, my 48 weeks so I can get four weeks off so I can get some rest. And that's not what we're to be laboring for. We're to be laboring in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse number 11. Then it pulls it in. And so when I, by the way, when I first read this verse, I began to think to myself, wow, man, is this verse saying that I have to work to get that salvation rest that's found in Jesus? Well, as you clearly meditate and read on the verse, it's not what it's saying. It says, let us labor, therefore. So why are we to labor? Well, because we know a day of rest is coming. And there's going to be people who don't know about that rest, and we are called to tell them about that rest. So believers are called to never cease from laboring and toiling and working the gospel and advancing the gospel into this culture. Paul said it like this, therefore being unmovable. He said, be steadfast. He said, always abound in the work of the Lord. He said, you know that your labor is not in vain. So every time you share your testimony, every time you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not doing that in vain because God is going to use you and advance his message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, hey, church, we are called to go into the highways. We are called to go into the hedges. We are called to go out into the world and compel them that they need to believe this rest that is found in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only in Him. And that is why Jesus came. That is why Jesus lived a sinless life. That is why Jesus died on the old rugged cross. That is why Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. That is why Jesus ascended up to glory. That's why He's coming back again. Because He will establish a period of rest on this earth for a thousand years. But it's only all picturing the great eternal rest found in Him in eternity. G Joshua offered a temporal rest. 
But Jesus offers an eternal rest. Disbelief in God's promises produces disbelief to God's precepts. Remember, God gave us His best in order to give us His rest. God's rest is the greatest rest. There's nothing that compares to the rest found in Jesus Christ. Will you come with me to the well-esteemed verses now? Verses that many of you probably have committed to memory. Verse number 12 and 13. And as I read these verses, I, I wrote down this third and final thought. Grace is given to all who accept God's rest, but judgment is given to all who reject God's rest. Grace is given to all who accept God's rest, but judgment is given to all who reject God's rest. I love verse number 12. Because this verse, it reveals to us that the Bible is unlike any other book that's ever been written. The Bible is, 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 is a book that far exceeds every other book in the world. You know, I've read portions of the Quran, and it does not contain what this verse says. It says, for the word of God is quick. This literally means it's an old English term to mean that this book that you're holding, it is just as much alive as you are today. And it is able it is, it is far able to bring life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. You see, if you open up the Quran and you begin to read it, it does not have the capability. It does not have the power to give life to those who are spiritually dead. You open up the Book of Mormon, and as interesting as a book that is, it does not have the ability to give you the power to be raised in new life in Christ. You can open up the Satanic Bible. It won't do that for you. You can open up any other document. You can open up Harry Potter, and it, it might be a cool little novel that you might read, but it has not a living power that this book has. Listen, you can go through the Library of Congress. You can go through all the encyclopedias. You can go through all the novels. You can go through all the nonfiction. You can go through every book that's ever been written throughout the course of humanity. But it does not compare to the book that you're holding right here in your hand. And let me tell you something. The, as we kind of... Bring it all together. The Bible is saying here that if God makes a promise, he has the power to fulfill that promise. Because his word is just as much alive as Jesus is today. Powerful. I guess really the message of verse 12 is this. God sees the motives of our hearts. Today I decided... Uh, I was going to wear my nice purple tie because purple is a symbol of royalty. So I decided I was going to get out my nice white dress shirt. I was going to wear my, one of my nicer suits here. And I've even got dress shoes on. Not even wearing my tennis shoes today. <laughs> we can gather together and we can look picture perfect. Right? But the Word of God has a way to pierce through that appearance and know that just because I might be wearing this nice fancy suit and tie and shirt and shoes, 
God is the one who knows that all of our hearts are filthy. All of our hearts are dirty. All of our hearts are contaminated by sin. And we're wretched before the eyes of God. And so God can look past the flashy apparel. And he can look down into the depths of our hearts. And, and listen, this verse right here is why, why a lot of people would rather hear preaching that's tickling their ears. That's, that, that, that sounds so good to the ear. And that it's motivational and not doctrinal. And here, because the Bible says that the word of God is sharp. And man, it is sharp. In fact, the Bible that I'm holding is the sharpest piece of equipment that I've ever handled. And the word says pierce. It literally means that because it's sharp and, and, and it pierces, it's able to, to drive through the outside and dig into the inside. And so as, as the word of God is being expounded, kind of like uh, f- uh, word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, book by book, testament by testament, you begin to open it up and you begin to unravel what the word of God says. Our, our world, our fleshly nature hates it because this book does what every other document cannot do, and that is bring conviction upon the heart of man. And it discerns. It judges our thoughts and the intents and motives of our hearts. You might be able to fool me, and I might be able to fool you, but we cannot fool God. As I read verse 13, I thought about this. Not only God sees the motives of our hearts, but I wrote down this. God sees the actions of our lives. I'm talking about the thoughts that have gone through your mind that nobody else knows about. But you paused and began to dwell and meditate on those thoughts that were not pure in the eyes of God. I'm talking about those words and conversations that you've had that only you and a handful of other people even know about. God sees that and knows that. I'm talking about those actions that you've done in private and nobody knows. Not even your spouse knows about it. But God does. You see, God knows everything about our lives and we cannot hide from the presence of God. In verse number 13, it says, Neither is there any creature. I love the usage of this word creature. It doesn't say man. It doesn't say woman. It doesn't say brethren. It doesn't say anything like that because I believe the writer is in his mind. He's saying there's no created being in this universe that can escape the judgment of God. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl, no angelic being, no seraphim, no cherubim, no Michael, no Gabriel, no Lucifer, no demonic spirit. Nobody, no being can escape the judgment of God. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. God sees it all and God knows it all. But all things are naked. Something we don't talk about in the church a lot is nakedness. But you know the Bible talks about it. In fact, the first time nakedness is mentioned is in Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam and Eve saw themselves as God saw them. Naked. Uncovered 
in their sin. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wherefore, as by one man sinned into the world and so death passed, we're all sinners. But God came to restore our relationship with him. As I think about these verses, as we think about this hardening heart in chapter 3 and chapter 4, here's how you know you have a calloused heart towards the word of God. That is, when you are unashamed of your sin, you have a calloused and hardened heart to the word of God. That's our world today. Our world lives in open, blatant, adulterous sin to the eyes of God. And our world has received that message of, this, of the good news of Jesus Christ. They've received it and they, they, many of them know that, that only through the power of the gospel can they receive this eternal rest found in Christ. But, but time after time after time after time they've rejected it and denied it over and over again. And the temptation is to develop a calloused heart that is so calloused and so hardened that just says, I don't want that grace. I don't want that rest. I don't want heaven. I'd rather spend it in hell. I want you to know this. That if you accept God's grace, one day you will cease from the toils and laboring of this world. You will. And you experience rest. I'm talking about a rest that you've never even, that our minds can't fathom. But if you reject the message of Jesus Christ, you will spend all eternity laboring, toiling, sweating, weeping, wailing, gnashing, crying, begging for deliverance from the torments of a devil's hell. Perhaps the writer of Hebrews has the words of Christ in mind. And if you would, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Close with these words. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that are, that, excuse me, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's rest is the greatest rest. There's nothing that can compare to it. You see, God gave His best in order to give us His rest. But you see, disbelief in God's promises produces disobedience to God's precepts. You see, Joshua offered a temporal rest, but we see this Jesus offers an eternal rest 
And grace is given to all who accept God's rest, but judgment is given to all who reject God's rest. My question for you today is this. Do you believe God's rest is the greatest rest? Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.